On today's episode, the Royal Shakespeare Company's former artistic director takes a look back at four decades of staging Shakespeare. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. Greg Doran's career as a Shakespearean director began in the late 1970s when he was a teenager. By the time he stepped down as the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company earlier this year, Doran had directed every play in the first folio. He capped off this remarkable feat with a production of Cymbeline. His staging of that notoriously difficult play drew rave reviews. In between, Doran helmed era-defining productions of Shakespeare's plays, both the well-known and the relatively obscure. He even brought Shakespeare's non-dramatic poetry to the stage with a version of Venus and Adonis starring puppets. Along the way, he worked with actors such as Judi Dench, David Tennant, Patrick Stewart, and the late Anthony Shear, to whom Doran was married. Doran's new memoir, My Shakespeare, tells the story of his life through the plays he has directed. It's a portrait of an artist at work shot through with commentary about the plays themselves and insights about working with actors. It's also an intimate account of Doran's deep artistic partnership with Tony Shear. Now that Doran has stepped down, he's on tour, visiting as many first folios as he can all around the world. I look forward to showing him the Folgers copies before too long. Here's Greg Doran in conversation with Barbara Bogave. Greg, it it is so nice to talk to you again, and congratulations on your great reviews for Cymbeline. Thank you very much. It's the most wonderful play. I think I had vastly underestimated it. I had no idea quite why it was the last one in the folio, but I think it's there now, not because it's tragedy, but because it defies all categories. Oh, well, what a wonderful way to go out then. (laughs) That's good. did Did you intend to save it for last? I didn't really. In fact, of all of the shows I've worked on in, in Stratford, Cymbeline was one of the first as an assistant director. I was assistant director in 1989 on a production. And the understudy run went so badly that I thought that was the end of my career at the RSC. So <laughs> Cymbeline has bookended it in a very strange way. Well, that's great because I want to talk about how your career almost ended before it started too. <laughs> So so why don't we go all the way back to the beginning okay. now, just for fun, or, or beginning-ish. It's 1979, and you were uh, directing Romeo and Juliet quite young. Why did Romeo faint? Well, this was, we. you see, we were a very ambitious young theatre company at university. In fact, we had got students from both drama schools and universities all over the country to be in this show, and we were touring the UK. And grandly, we had our opening gala night at the Mayfair Theatre in in London, uh, just for one Sunday performance. And uh, for some reason, we had got in late. They hadn't been able to fit the set on the stage. We hadn't had time for a fight rehearsal or a technical rehearsal. And it was my we palms were, we were are barely, getting sweaty oh, just hearing oh, this. <laughs> listen, it was it was a nightmare, and so we but we did the show, and um, I remember watching as 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 Romeo exited downstage left in a, in a fury, having uh, killed uh, Tybalt, 
and um, uh, he disappeared off, off downstage left. And, and the next time he came on uh, in the cell with Friar Lawrence, he seemed to be completely incoherent. <laughs> and um, <laughs> then when the nurse came in and said, um, you know, when the, the nurse says, where is Romeo? And the, and the friar says, there on the ground with his own tears made drunk. I suddenly thought, oh, my God, Romeo's, Romeo's drunk. He's just, <laughs> the tension of the day has just got too much for him and he's, um, he's hit the bottle. But, in fact, exiting after the line, oh, I am fortune's fool, he had crashed into the, into the wall in the wing and, and passed out. Uh, so Fry Lawrence was basically holding him up for the performance. It's like the Three Stooges. I mean, <laughs> You couldn't make it up. <laughs> And then, of course, the two hours traffic of the stage sort of started to drag closer to four, and I thought, that's it, that's the end of my... I'm not doing this anymore. It's too, it's too difficult. <laughs> well, so, it's yeah. really funny that that that's your abiding memory, really, of your first Romeo and Juliet, but that you write in your book that you like to use the opening of Romeo and Juliet as an early exercise in rehearsals. So, that's right. So, it, that's why? right. So that yeah. So it's um, it's a good icebreaker. So it's, it's it's interesting that the 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 prologue, the very famous prologue to Romeo and Juliet, um, two households both alike in dignity, which uh, weirdly doesn't appear in the folio at all for some reason. Um, but it is. It's a sonnet, and within that sonnet, it has pretty much everything you need to sort of know as a young actor about the clues that Shakespeare's written into the text. So I, I, I use it as part of what I call a, a Shakespeare gym uh, here in Strat, which, which is a regular part of rehearsal process, basically to sort of just get some basic facts down and, and, and give everybody a sense of being able to share. So I always say, you know, no, no question is too stupid because what you're thinking on, you know, somebody else on the other side of the circle is, is thinking at the same time. So it's a and, kind and of sharing. And it's so rich. Um, you say it gets interesting when you get to a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. What conversation yeah. comes out of that line? Well, we do, we do a sort of... We, we, we do a, a paraphrase. We start just by going, okay, just line into your own words. Um, and nine times out of ten, whoever is paraphrasing a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life says a pair of lovers sort of fated by the stars commit suicide to take their life. But if you reverse the two lines... Um, it becomes um, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life from forth the fatal loins of their these two foes. So it means they were born. They take their life from their parents, not the other way around, which always astonishes people. Now, Shakespeare may have put that in as a pun, you know, that it's a... He's he's kind of using take their life in both the senses of they take their own lives and they take their life from their parents. But it's how it's heard... <laughs> That is that is interesting. So you, part of your job as artistic director is to bring in every play in a reasonable amount of time. So you do the math and you realize that the prologue can't last more than 33 seconds. So can you do it in, in 33 would seconds? Like me, would you like me to do it for yeah, you, Bob? Yeah, I'd I'm love to hear that. To. Have you got a stopwatch? <laughs> Always. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm going to just try and... So this is the prologue to Romeo and Juliet spoken very fast, uh, and if uh, you were to do the whole play in the two hours traffic of the stage, then you would have to do the prologue in 33 seconds. So here we go. 
Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, whose civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two-house traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patience as attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Wow. <laughs> you, you, I have 25... Twenty-five fifty-six. Uh, I think I missed out a lot. Anyway, um, there you go. So You're that's, not going to win any yeah. awards for that, though. <laughs> no. And we'd all be dead by the end of Act One if we did it at that speed. You know. but I can see why you call it Shakespeare Jim. Yes, <laughs> it's exhausting. Um, well, that's wonderful to hear because you did start out as an actor, and and your first Shakespeare yeah. role was Lady Anne in Richard Three, and you were what fourteen, and this was a Catholic boys' school, so that makes sense. It was. It was a Jesuit college in, in Preston, in, in Lancashire. And they did an annual Shakespeare play. And I'd missed out on Ophelia in, in Form 2. Went to Gags, Ronson, maybe Rot in Hell. <laughs> and, um, and the following year, I, I, I managed to land um, a Lady Anne. Yeah. We, we all looked like the Osmonds, because this is the 1970s. But Richard looked like Mark Bolan and was a sort of sexy and, you know, had glitter about him, and I just fell in love with him. So when I had to, to he had to kiss the ring. Um, you know, I um, I nearly fainted. I have to say, because <laughs> you didn't get there wasn't a lot of touch between uh, the pupils of the Preston Catholic College in the mid nineteen seventies. I suppose what was great was that I never regarded Shakespeare as an exam question. For me, because of the Shakespeare plays, it was always an opportunity, and they were great fun. And they they were absorbing, and you know you were devouring the plays to see which part you wanted to play, and and you and I start I, the bit you know the bug just bit very very early for me, and I I wanted to see every Shakespeare play, and we had a a French student called Vincent um, who was staying with us. We piled into the back of Mum's mini, and um, she drove us all the way down the M6 to to Stratford, and it was a matinee of As You Like It with Eileen Atkins as Rosalind. And there was an understudy on as Orlando. I don't know what happened to him. His name's David Suchet. And it was absolutely wonderful. And I came sort of floating out of the theatre and apparently turned to my mum on on our way back up to Preston. And I said, "Uh, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And so... I guess I must have grown up. And you, you, you write in the introduction to your book that this is uh, the story of Shakespeare as the watermark running through your life. You do that very well, and especially about your life. And you, you talk about your longtime partner of 35 years, Tony Shear. Yeah. And I'm so sorry he passed two, two years Thank ago. You. He was on the, yeah. the show in 2018. Oh, talking good. about his, his, his year of Lear. Um, yeah. So you first worked with him in Merchant of Venice, and he was Shylock. You played Solano. I did. You write that as a young actor, being on stage with Tony was just a revelation. So, and it sounds like he taught you a lot about being present on stage. Yeah, he did. And in a very particular way, one sort of wet Wednesday matinee. The production was sort of set in its period in Venice, and so all the Christians walked around with sort of handsome doublets and 
lots of lace and um, swords strapped to their thighs. And uh, Tony had chosen to play Shylock as one of the communities of the Jews in Venice at the time were the, were the Levantine Jews. There were the Ponentine Jews, the, the, the Jews who had fled the persecution of the Spanish Inquisition. And so there were different communities of Jews, but the, the Levantine Jews seemed to suggest the furthest away you could possibly get from the um, from these sophisticated um, Christians. So I um, spent much of my time um, with a stick beating Tony up. So I, I, as I was, you know, phoning my performance in on this Wednesday matinee, I, he suddenly grabbed my stick. Now, if I'd been present, if I'd been really there, I wouldn't have let him grab my stick or I would have fought him off. Um, which is why he but, did it. Which is why he did it. Right. And, and so um, he, he basically grabbed my stick and chased me around the stage. <laughs> um, and uh, Did I you thought, know well, why, what's... though? Did you know? Well, not at the time. I yeah. thought, well, we haven't rehearsed this. <laughs> um, but I realised later on that that he had. It was it was a, a little moment to to say you're not present, and you know you have to be every single moment. And and it was disrespectful too to to not be present in a way. Um, but he was one of the great things about his performances and, and and certainly being on stage with him that that he was present in a sort of volcanic way you know he was so immediately there in every single second of it there was no there was no tony show winking behind you know shylock's fierce exterior so when it came to the hath not a jew eyes speech it was it was like being on stage with a hurricane did you have a set of rules about working together I mean, did you did you very clearly compartmentalize your work and your private lives to lives we to had make that to, work? Yeah, we had to. Um, we because we got it wrong. Um, the first time I directed Tony was an opportunity that arose uh, to direct him as Titus Andronicus at, at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg, just at the end of apartheid. We'd get home in the evening, and I would want to flop and have a gin and tonic and sit by the pool. <laughs> and listen to the Hadidars, who were these marvellous ibis that settled in the trees. And he would go, yeah, but what about that bit in Act 3, Scene 3? And and is that actor going to do that? And don't you think we should cut a bit more of the... Etc. And I, I had said to him, look, Tony, I, I, I need to just chill. I'm, I'm at home now. Just because you have access to me as your director doesn't mean that I, I don't have right to have some downtime too. And You must and have said that a lot. I did. I did. And uh, ultimately, he wasn't listening and would carry on. So I, 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 threw, I threw a plate, I threw my dinner at him. Um, and, really? And, um, yeah, I did. Yeah, a plate of peas, I think. And we, anyway, we decided from that point on that we needed to have a set of ground rules so that when we were at home, you had to ask permission to talk about the play you know we sometimes didn't talk for the evening as a result but it was an important thing not only for us but for the other actors in the company who you know wouldn't think didn't didn't want them to think oh well they're all the two of them are just cooking it up at home and you know we'll never get a word in edgeways i want to talk about macbeth which starred tony yeah. um 
Because you started rehearsals saying Macbeth three times and banning the phrase the Scottish play, which is just so wonderful to picture. I just imagine, what were your actors doing? Just (gasps) gasping right and left? (laughs) Well, I just think there's a lot of nonsense talked about um, the curse of, of Macbeth. The curse of Macbeth, if there is one, is that it's a very difficult play for the production to match up to the audiences or the readers' um, expectations of the play when they 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 the first flush of which they they read it. And so we 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 banned that and got down to sort of talking about what really made us afraid, um, because fear or uh, or the very or the words connected to fear appear most in that play, and the word love seems to appear least. So we wanted to explore what really fear did to um, the human body. And so I got everybody to tell me a, a moment when they had really experienced fear. And what was interesting was what happened to their breath, and actually what happened to the breath of the people listening to them. Quite often it became held or it became short of breath or it became very rapid breathing. And I thought, well, we need to get the audience on the edge of their seats and with that sense of breathless kind of anticipation of what's what's going to happen. So once you got this emotional heart of it, it dictated this great design uh, for the witches, which sounds wonderful. I, I wish I had experienced this. You weren't able to use it, though. Uh, anyway, it was you, you say the biggest puzzle of Macbeth is what to do with the witches because it can hijack the play. Yeah. And so describe the, your concept that you came up with and what you did in previews. So we began the play, this was in the Swan Theatre where we opened, um, and we decided that we would go suddenly with a great kind of metal clunk to black. And instead, because your eyes get accustomed and you suddenly realise the exit signs are there and bits and bits and pieces of, of light maybe from the musician's gallery or whatever. And so we got rid of all those and we had, we were allowed for a few moments for the the ushers to hold cards up in front of the, of the exit sign. So there was really no light. And it was quite astonishing how, uh, with the effect that had on the audience. And um, then as the three witches, the three weird sisters, I should say, um, began uh, speaking, you you thought you imagined that there, they somehow three women had appeared on the stage and had started to speak. What you didn't know was that, in fact, we had flown in three loudspeakers and the voices of the witches were being piped in from where they were, which was backstage. But at the end, as they say, a hover through the fog and filthy air... We drew the uh, each of the speakers out over the heads of the audience, and so it it seemed like they were flying above you, and it freaked the audience. Out. I bet because um, what I you mean, imagine in your mind's eye is always worse than anything yeah, you would ever see. Exactly, which exactly. is so speaks to Macbeth as well. Well, it, it sort of we had. We had to cut it, in fact, because it so freaked out the audience that by the time we got to the poor, you know, bleeding sergeant telling Duncan what had happened in the battle, um, the audience just couldn't wouldn't calm down. <laughs> calm down. So uh, after probably only three previews, we I, I thought, well, we'll we'll just have the actors on stage, and and that's fine. Um, and you know, but it started us off in a in a really strong way in terms of. 
the play being only happening between you and the, and the audience, the, between the stage and the, and the audience, and, and uh, you were complicit in, in what you thought you saw. So we had a back wall um, that was made to look like the rest of the swan, but in fact was a fake brick wall. And when we got to the apparitions, the some of the back of the some of the sections of the wall had been painted on neoprene which is like the suit the wetsuits are made out of neoprene and so the apparitions standing behind the wall could push their faces through what seemed as if it was meant to be solid brick and yeah, you called this a melting wall yeah just it was, the it was, stuff of horrors it's... It absolutely right, and 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 so in a way, it worked because you had set up something. You had made the audience believe that that was a brick wall, and they had no reason to believe otherwise. And then suddenly it melted, and that was. And then, of course, the neoprene just went. Once they pulled their faces back out, the neoprene just went back entirely to its uh, its, its original position. Well, these are such great examples of how you unlock a play through really maybe an exercise or, or, or one inroad. And you have another example of that in Othello, uh, where you, in the book the, you the, describe the it as... Yes. Yeah, the crossroads. Um, so I remember seeing a production of Romeo and Juliet with Ian McKellen and Francesca Annis, so it was quite a long time ago. And as Romeo cradled Juliet in his arms thinking this she was she had died in the tomb and was about to kill himself suddenly francesca Annis stretched out her arm behind ian mckellen's head and you kind of went oh she's oh she's gonna she's gonna wake up it, 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 this time it's all gonna be different um and, and it'll change for once and <laughs> for once yeah of course it doesn't but you know it might have done and i think the problem sometimes with Shakespeare is that it's so familiar to many of the audience and certainly to many of the actors that they can reach a point where a ca character has a series of options. And because they know, because they've read the rest of the play, they know that the character goes straight across those crossroads. They don't stop to think about what the other options might be. So I call those crossroads. And in Othello, Tony was playing Iago, um, a wonderful South African actor called Silo Marke Katulbe was playing Othello. And it got the scene, the great kind of gulling scene, where Iago is, is poisoning Othello's mind about the faithfulness of his wife, Desdemona. And basically, Othello is, is kind of winning. He's going to beat Iago into a pulp. And we had always seen Iago as being a great improviser, but here he is, he's really bouncing on his, his tightrope and, and he's, he's liable to fall off. So he, he, he got to a point where uh, it looked as though he had been defeated by Othello and Othello wasn't going to play ball and uh, his, his strategy wasn't going to work. And Tony in rehearsal, who, who used to sweat a lot as, a, as an actor, always had a, a hanky nearby. And at one point, at that point, in fact, he, he pulled out a hanky from his, from his pocket and wiped his brow. And then suddenly you realised that it was spotted with strawberries. It was the hanky that he had taken from Amelia that was the present that Othello had given to Desdemona. And he has no idea what he's going to do with this. But it was at that moment where the inspiration hit Tony that uh, he would ask Othello whether 
He'd ever seen such a hanky in his wife's hand. And it was electric, of course, because it felt as though that the whole play could change or that, you know, that in fact that night, uh, Iago wasn't going to manage to to um, dupe Othello. But so Crossroads be- have become for me quite a key thing of looking in the, in the, in the text as to where things might be different, things could go in a different way, and that the characters have choices, even though we know the choice that they make is dictated by the text. I want to skip uh, ahead now to what you say is your favourite play, Midsummer. Why? (laughs) It's the perfect play, isn't it? He manages somehow to keep each of those four plots in the air. He keeps those plates spinning and it is also it it has the most beautiful language and the most extraordinary imagination apart from it also being a gloriously funny play so yeah it's a a play i have always loved and you realized while you were rehearsing midsummer that your father introduced you to shakespeare through a recording of mendelssohn's incidental music for the play that's correct he 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 used to get these um, sets of um, symphonies and things. And in one of them was the incidental music, but with uh, extracts from the play. I, I, I didn't know the play at all. And suddenly I was in this wood and somebody's been turned into a donkey. And Puck, who was played by an actress and with very high voice, which I thought sounded very like Mickey Mouse, said, I'll put a girdle around about the earth in 40 minutes. And I thought, crikey, that's that's amazing. My my dad, who was a scientist, had told me that, that um, just before I was born, Sputnik had orbited the globe in an hour and a half. So I thought, crikey, Puck is twice as fast as Sputnik. <laughs> um, and you mentioned your your father had dementia, and that for years you couldn't watch or even read Lear. No, I couldn't. And I, I, in a way, I remember, I just, I remember thinking, I, it's, I, I, having experienced dad's um, d- dementia, which was, which was mild, he, he wasn't a sort of, he wasn't, you know, raging across the heath, as it were, but, um, or being cruel. Um, so we had a very gentle experience of it, really. Um, nevertheless, it was, it was very hard because he couldn't comprehend where my mother had gone, for instance. Um, I would keep on forgetting when, when we tried to tell him. Um, but I, when we, it came to 2016, and it was the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, and Tony and I had were thinking maybe that was the year where we should, we should work together again. And he said, what about Lear? And he said, I know you find it a difficult play, I don't think Leah has dementia, and I think you should read it again. He also had experience with it in his family, too. Yeah, right? he yeah. did. He did. Yeah. And he said when he, with his father, and he said when he was here, it just didn't seem like dementia from his experience yeah. or your experience. That's, what that's right. And people, people, dementia is, tends to be progressive, or Alzheimer's particularly is progressive, and, and therefore you rarely, you may have moments of lucidity, but you don't, you don't recover. 
And his um, contention was that Leah does recover and and is blessed when when Cordelia and the Doctor that that marvelous scene where he he wakes up, that 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 is is his recovery from from dementia. That particular the ending of that particular play became important in terms of when when Tony died um, eighteen months ago, people were very extraordinarily um kind and and generous in their responses and 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 wanting to share their 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 love of of him and um people would say you know he don't he'll be there in the breeze and he'll be there in the you know the lapping of the the, the waves on the beach etc and i kind of went that's just doesn't work for me that's that's not what happens um and I remembered when uh, Tony, uh, as Lear, held the dead Cordelia in his arms and said, you know, thou'lt come no more, never, 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 never. And I had wondered at the time what, why he repeated the word never quite so many times. And then when Tony died, I understood because it's trying to... Ex- trying to articulate the incomprehensible fact that he is never coming back through, never going to walk through that door. I will never, never, never see him again. And stealing yourself against the anodyne, oh, they'll be in the breeze. Yeah, yeah, the kind of hallmark card response to to grief. And, and, you know, Shakespeare is great on, on grief. There's a moment when the Duchess of Gloucester in Richard II says, you know, for sorrow ends not when it seemeth done. And there are many times when I kind of go, I think people think I'm fine, but I'm still kind of screaming inside. And and in a way that's that Shakespeare just seems to he just seems to know that, doesn't he? He's just he's just he's brilliant at knowing us in every particle of our essence and three hundred and sixty degrees of our human experience. Well, you write that the the single most significant thing that you did was decide to work your way through the entire canon instead of cycling through the favorites as pre- previous yeah. directors had done, which I imagine was, you faced some opposition about that, but, and you did it. Um, but were you planning to resign before Tony's final illness? I... I had always thought that um, by 2023, by this year, um, that we... the progress we were making working our way through the entire canon in the folio was was working well and that we would have finished it by 2022 and then we would do something special in 2023 for the for the first folio anniversary and then it would I'm, i'm i'll be 65 in november of this year and he would have been 75 and that felt like you know time maybe to to um spend spend more of our time together it was 50 years since that production of as you like it with eileen atkins and as it as i was also coming up to which is what i have just done my 50th rsc production it felt as though this was the time to step down, what I hadn't anticipated would there be a global pandemic and that he would be diagnosed with cancer. Um, so the best laid plans of, of mice and men, but I, I nevertheless felt it was the right time to to step aside. I There's a line in Richard III, Richard says before the Battle of Bosworth, I have not that alacrity of spirit 
uh, nor joy of mind as I was wont to have. And I felt that. I just, I, you know, my, my get up and go had got up and left. And that it also felt like a like change was in the air and that the world in those last two years had changed so completely, not just for me personally, but there was a sense of people standing up and saying, you've had your go, other people need to, to have theirs. And, and though I, I hope I had done a, a lot to embrace diversity and the more the different voices, uh, both being on our stages and directing on our stages, etc., that, that nevertheless, that change has to come from the top. And if the people at the top are, aren't going to shift, then then that's a very difficult thing to implement. So it, it felt, for all those reasons, like the, the right time to move on. Well, I have to let you move on. I have to let you go. But I, I know you have a trip planned to see some first folios this year. I have. I King have Charles, been, I understand. Indeed. King Charles is, uh, uh, has agreed to show me the copy at Windsor, which will be the last of all the 50 copies in the UK that I have left to see. Um, next month, I'm off to Japan to see the 15 copies in Japan and then going down to Sydney and Auckland and then across to, to Cape Town, where obviously I have Tony's family there. And then in the autumn, I am starting up in Chicago and then Stratford, Ontario. And then I'm basically working my way through that's a spine of the Ivy League universities, um, all of whom have at least one folio. And then ending up as the finale of my of my folio roadshow at the Folger, I hope, because of course um, you could not you could not contemplate a survey of all the extant folios in the world without coming to the Folger and seeing the eighty two that the Folger has at, yeah, and in what I believe is going to be a spectacular new space. So it's I never set out to see them all. I just thought I'd try and see as many as I could, but um yeah, it's grand like topsy a bit. Well we can't wait. Thank you for the conversation. Oh, thanks, Barbara. That's it was great talking to you. That was Greg Doran talking to Barbara Bogave. Doran's memoir, My Shakespeare, A Director's Journey Through the First Folio, is out now from Methuen Drama. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer, with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Melvin Rickerby at Stratford and Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice so that we can make sure others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection. The Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under renovation for the past three years, but we're getting ready to open our doors again to the public. Come visit us on Capitol Hill beginning November 17, 2023. Take in a performance in our Elizabethan theater and check out the world's largest collection of first folios, all 82, on display together for the very first time. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.